Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. With the cost of living crisis here to stay, is there any more the government can do? to ease the blow. Another top job in the Department of Health is to be left vacant as Deputy Chief Medical Officer Dr Ronan Glynn announces his resignation. The Taoiseach Micheál Martin urges the opposition to trust the doctors when it comes to concerns over the National Maternity Hospital. And later, day one of the so-called Wagatha Christie trial. Join the conversation with the hashtag TonightVMTV. But first tonight, a woman in her 50s has been found dead in an apparent stabbing in Ballymun in Dublin. The alarm was raised earlier this afternoon. Well, Virgin Media news reporter Rob O'Hanrahan has been at the scene and sent me this report before we came on air. Well, Claire, this investigation is very much in its early stages. What we do know at this time is that a woman's body was discovered at a house in Sandy Hill Gardens in Ballymun earlier this afternoon with what we believe to be suspected stab wounds. We also understand, Claire, that she was the mother of two young children. Now, the Office of the State Pathologist was notified and a forensic examination got underway earlier on this evening. We've been speaking to locals in the area. They've been outlining to us what a shock this is and what a normally quiet area this has been total shock yeah it's not a bad area at all it's really not now as i said you'd see the bikes going up and down every now and again but you'd never see any fights or anything like that like so it's total shock i don't even know what to say it's it's shocking especially when it's on your own doorstep as well like i only live here so i just i don't know it's very very sad as far as i know it's quiet now my friend lives up here but um anytime i've come up to her like it's quiet enough you know what i mean oh just when i heard it yeah yeah i was going my god like during the day you know oh i don't know world's just gone crazy Gardaí have also been carrying out door-to-door inquiries throughout the evening, trying to ascertain the exact circumstances around this woman's death. What we do know, Claire, at this time, is that a woman believed to be in her 50s has died what has been suspected stab wounds here in Ballymun. Rob O'Hanrahan with that report. Well, the cost of living crisis has led to more price hikes in fuel, food and energy, with inflation placing increasing financial pressure on the public. Is there any more that can be done to ease the blow or has the government truly done all it can? Well, the latest figures show just how we're being hit in the pocket. Households here are paying €250 more for electricity than the EU average. We're paying an average €2,000 a year now to fuel our cars. Food prices are rising rapidly right across the world due to supply chain issues and war. Grocery bills here are set to rise by at least €330 this year. An expected ECB interest rate rises will push up the cost of borrowing and mortgages. 
All this, of course, is going against the backdrop of the invasion of Ukraine with the impact of war yet to be fully felt. Just before we came on air, I spoke to Europe correspondent for Euronews, Shona Murray, and I asked her for the latest on the move towards sanctioning Russian oil and whether everyone is on board. That's right. The stalemate continues. It's about a, it's a week now since the EU member states received a proposal from the European Commission to finally uh, put an embargo on Russian oil. And some member states, in particular Hungary, Slovakia and the Czech Republic, have a huge problem because they're landlocked countries because they ri- rely on uh, Russian pipelines. Their refineries uh, are set up to process Russian crude oil. So they are of the feeling that in order to phase out Russian oil once and for all, it would take up to four or five years. Uh, the Commission says it's willing to allow them up to the end of 2024 to do this, but Hungary is saying it would cost hundreds of millions of euro to do so as well, to completely change the infrastructure. And the Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, said on Friday that this was uh, akin to a nuclear bomb, an e- economic nuclear bomb against Europe. So Hungary is the country that is um, really digging its heels in until it gets a lot of money. Um, we saw Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, go to Budapest on Monday night, um, but really nothing. It was sort of almost a fruitless um, expedition because there was no progress made. That's according to EU sources that I've spoken to. And the ambassadors of all the member states are meeting in the morning to discuss it. Having said that, though, Claire, it, you know, this issue can't be insurmountable. You can't have three small countries or one very small country block these momentous sanctions, particularly when, you know, the oil and fuel and fossil fuels is so important to Russia's um, war machine. Uh, most importantly is, of course, big countries like Germany and France and so on, cutting off oil and cutting off that financing for Russia. But the question is, you know, will Viktor Orban what will he demand? How much money will he demand from the European Union? And again, you have this frustration that one country is holding it up, albeit, you know, very important concerns that those three countries have in fairness to their economies. And Shona, quite clearly, while every country is feeling the cost of living pinch at the moment, a new report out today shows that when it comes to electricity, we're paying a far higher price than many of our European neighbours. That's right. Ireland, about 26% higher than most EU countries. The only countries that are more expensive are here, Belgium, Germany, and a couple of others. This is a Eurostat report from last year. We know, Claire, obviously things have changed in terms of energy prices. Actually, for the past year or so, we've seen energy prices skyrocket, in part because of a higher demand, a surge in demand uh, after COVID. You also had Russia cutting back on the amount of gas it was supplying to the European Union. There was accusations that it was market manipulating. There was That came from the European Commission and the International Atomic Energy Agency. That was before the war. and uh, That was in order to drive up prices. And then since the war, you've seen, obviously, a huge amount of instability, of course, and Russia, in fact, um, doubling its income from oil and gas. We also know know that the price of energy is often pegged to the price of gas as well. So when the price of gas has been going up, that's created uh, an energy price surge. And, you know, one of the configurations from the commission before they decided to do the oil embargo, they, they were obviously hesitant because to sanction oil would likely drive up the price of it and not just impact the EU and European economies, but developing countries in Africa and places like that where, where who couldn't just afford a surge in energy prices. So we're, we're likely to see this continue for many, many months. And all of it likely to worsen significantly. Europe correspondent for Euronews, Shona Murray, thanks for joining us on the show tonight.
Well, in studio to discuss this and more is journalist with the Irish Independent, Sinead Ryan, Minister of State for Communications, Climate Action and the Environment, Hildegard Nocton, People Before Profit TD, Paul Murphy, and Director of Friends of the Earth, Oisín Coughlin. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Sinead, when we talk about the impact right now, even before what may be coming down the line, people are facing real difficulties, aren't they, with the current cost of living in this country? Some people are. Um, prices are really, really terribly high and that's, we know, a global issue. There's no point in appeasing people by saying it's not just Ireland, it's not just us. Um, it, it really is going to look as if it's going to pertain for some time. Um, I mean, it sounds almost glib to kind of say to people, aren't we lucky with the weather and, you know, um, it could be worse. But actually, I think that we need to start looking now at proper medium to long term strategies here. This isn't going to go away. It's not going to get any easier. Even if the war ends uh, in Ukraine, there is now a commitment not to take Russian supplies. And that's going to have to stay in place now. Mm. I mean, you can't go back and, and just say, actually, no, we're grand now. So I think that making longer term decisions about this is very, very important. And we need to look at all the green stuff. And yes, we're not doing enough in that area. But right now, right here, there are families who literally cannot afford to turn on the heating. They cannot afford to have showers. They cannot afford to run appliances in the house. Uh, and I really think we have to step in and do something in the immediate term. And that is not shoveling money at them. OK, we've done that. OK, and we can do it again. You can give people 200 quid till the end of days. It's inflationary. You know, it's fine. I think we have to look at this the way we did. Do you remember during COVID when the mortgage moratorium came in and the mm. banks were instructed, they didn't do it out of the goodness of their heart, they were told, look, stop taking mortgages off people, they're out of work and we'll suck it up and we'll repay it back in a few years' time. I think something the equivalent of that with the Commission for Energy Regulation needs to be instructed to tell their members, allow people to put on the heating, allow people use energy. Once this and if you can't down. afford it, we it, won't charge you. We well, we won't take the money off you now, but we will operate a repayment plan as we did with the mortgage moratorium. Ninety-six percent of people went back to completely normal repayments after COVID lifted. People will pay their bills; they want to pay their bills, but we need to give them a break to do so. Uh, do you think this is reasonable, Hildegard Nocton? An idea such as that—a proposal, a, a, a break for people who are really struggling right now—and whatever the government has done to date simply isn't enough. I think it's true that people are, are, are struggling and what we have done um, is, is put in an, a range of measures and targeted measures like the 125 euro fuel allowance lump sum. Um, actually from this month people are going to see a reduction in their gas and electricity bill is uh, through a VAT reduction from 13.5% to 9%. Yeah. Um, Every sector, we're looking at targeted measures. The hauliers, who have absolutely no other alternative other than to use diesel, we've put in place an 80 million euro scheme within my own department, and I worked on that with the sector. The farmers have got 90 million euro for all of these input costs now, the cost of fertilizer, which is directly affected mm. by the increase in but the price you of know, gas. Hildegard, all all of those groups things. you're talking about still say, this isn't enough. And we have been very honest about this from a government point of view. We will not be able to cushion everybody. But what we are going to do is look at the different sectors, target the most vulnerable, uh, try to give, I suppose, everybody a break, which we did through the 200 euro, um, you know, um, I suppose, off your, your electricity bill, which came through um, also so what, through... What through about the energy break? What about that idea for people who, who don't need to worry about elderly people, who don't need to worry about 
staying in their beds for longer because it's too cold in their homes and they can't afford to put the heat on. What about giving a break to them? So we have measures like the, f the fuel allowance, which was increased, that lump sum uh, through the Department of Social Protection. This is, can I just say, this? we're monitoring this on an ongoing basis in relation to how we support the different sectors, how we support families who are struggling. We've put in place a huge number of supports over the last few weeks and months, and that's not going to end. But, we, but I, I do agree with Sinead that it, we have to start looking as well as at a more medium-term okay. solution to this because we don't know uh, what's down the road in relation to the war in Ukraine and the increase of these well, costs. But we have to well, protect the sectors, the critical sectors are going to get higher. But we have put in place an awful lot of supports right. around that through energy. And Oisín Cochrane, you come at this from, from a climate perspective too. Do you believe while carbon taxes are necessary, there has to be more done to help the most vulnerable, to help those who are really struggling? Because we know not everyone is impacted in this country by the cost of living in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I think, we need to, I think we need to target our supports more than the €200. Euro. Like, I don't think many people could do without that. We need to, particularly for next winter, Sinead's right, we need, we need a medium-term plan now. So we listen a lot to what the people like Vincent de Paul and Age Action say about this. They call for a, more, for a broader benchmarking of social welfare, as well as fuel allowance, against the rising cost of living, to give people, because the fuel allowance doesn't capture everyone who needs, who needs help. It needs to be broadened so that it includes those on the working family payment. At the moment, if you lose your job and you're on the job seekers allowance, it's 12 to 15 months before you're eligible for the fuel allowance. That needs to change in the next budget so that anyone who needs the fuel allowance can get it next winter. But I think Sinead's right, we need to look more broadly. I mean, the, uh, the UK regulator has already introduced a measure whereby the utility companies have to put everybody on the lowest available tariff because the people least likely to switch are those probably most vulnerable to being uh, at risk of fuel poverty. So that's a, an interesting measure that's already being done, as well as the more dramatic one that, that Sinead's suggesting. And I would also extend the ban on disconnections, which is applied at times in the winter months, and from now until the end of the fuel crisis, which again is kind of a backstop version of what you're suggesting. So we absolutely need those measures. But just to say, I don't think there's any contradiction between the green, the green stuff that you mentioned and this, because actually what the war has shown is that we need to get off fossil fuels. As well as being dirty yeah. for the climate, they are expensive and volatile. And, and so the sooner it, we can do that in, by insulation and by ramping up renewables, the better. It, it's interesting what you're saying about putting some of this cost back on the energy suppliers because we are not actually taxed higher than other EU countries. Taxes and levies make up about 20% of the price, but the, the prices charged by our suppliers are the highest in the EU. That's, what, that's why we are paying those higher bills, Paul Murphy. That's right. And we had one of the lowest prices for electricity in all of the European Union before our electricity supply was deregulated and privatised. Um, that's a direct consequence. And the reason for that is because you now have multiple companies making very significant profits. And it's something in this crisis that nobody is talking about. All of the energy companies, absolutely every single one, have announced significant rises in profits um, in the last recorded profits that they've announced from the previous uh, year, while they are also significantly putting up prices. And it's why I go further than what Sinead says. I mean, the government has the power in the Consumer, price, uh, Consumer Protection Act to say we're going to have a price control in terms of electricity. 
we're going to have price control in terms of gas, in terms of uh, petrol, etc. They can say the maximum can be charged is this amount. Where would that come from? That would come from eating into these significant profits which are being made. Yeah, are, like are we are we sufficiently taking companies and suppliers to task on this, Hildegard Nocton? Like when all these rises came in and we got announcements week after week from each of the suppliers, we also got increases in standing charges and all those other other increases that came in that really had nothing to do with you know energy supply into this country. Well, for, first of all, can I just say the reason why? Um, I suppose the, the, so the cost of electricity here in Ireland is um, higher than other our European counterparts is because of we're on the periphery of I suppose mainland Europe the transportation costs I'll get to the other issues as well the transportation costs around um, even transporting oil uh, the grid network the fact that our population is more I suppose dispersed in rural Ireland and that does add cost to it but just in relation to what, still what, huge what, what we have done as I say the, they, the, would, the, would you the agree that they're making huge profits when are, we see, yeah, when and, we see uh, what we're paying compared to others, have, others in other European yeah, countries. What we have done is reduced the VAT rate on our on your gas and electricity bills from this month right out to October from 13.5% down to 9%. The regulator as well, and this feeds into what has been said earlier, our regulator is working at an EU level as well because this is not just an issue for Ireland. This is this energy... Is the regulation the energy, a little soft around this no, though? That's been work, the criticism in this country for, for very many so issues. Our, our regulator, the our regulator, the, the CRU, our regulator is working at an EU level and is, is going to publish a paper. For example, there's a levy. When you look at your ESB bill, your electricity bill, there's a levy there that goes towards actually funding renewable energy, be it solar or wind energy. Um, by October of this year, that will be at zero. So that works out about four or five euro a month we pay, we all pay through this levy on our electricity bill. That will be reduced. Yeah, we have the a windfall tax on the, these, the, the, the war profiteering finish, of electricity companies. Okay, Sinead, I want you to come in on that. It is that. So what we're saying is we're looking at all of this, but also working with our European counterparts. Okay. This is not just an issue for Ireland in relation to the rising cost. The PSO right. levy Sinead. is a counterweight, so it only goes down when the profits of these companies go up. Okay, so so it's a balanced thing, so it'll go, it'll be higher as, as the companies do. So th that kind of, it's important and it goes to the right thing, but that's not really the point. The energy cap thing, they did that in the UK. Three companies went bust almost immediately. Okay, now, ideologically, you know, maybe there's a point to be made about whether or not you should privatise utilities and energy resources and all that kind of thing. But just putting a cap on how much you can charge doesn't work. Um, and I leave it up to others to decide if companies are making too much money or not enough money or whatever. But the uh, shop I, I don't around think, argument, no, do you think the shop I, around I, argument I, applies I, then, Sinead? Well, to some extent it does. Because there are at least 14 suppliers in this market, we have actually become very apathetic at switching. I'm not, not going to dump all this in the consumer because that's not fair. Utilities are incredibly complex. If you get your bill, there's about seven acronyms that you have to fight your way through to even uncover what you're paying and where well, you're paying it to. It's a consequence of this system of competition and privatisation. That isn't ideological. Yeah, People well, are paying more as a consequence of that. We should not have privatised the electricity sector. It, we should reverse the privatisation and then use control of the electricity sector to drive reduction in energy usage and rapid transition to renewable energy. That's not happening under oh, the private okay. market. But in in fact, the European Commission has just signed right. a deal with the US to have more fossil fuels, to have LNG. They're going in the wrong direction in response but to this see, crisis. Even if we decided, okay. even if we decided as a country, 
and I'm ambivalent on the issue, but if we decide as a country, right, we're going to re-regulate the market and um, only have one supplier or that's government owned, mm. you're still not going to do that by the end of next week when people actually need help with their bills this year, uh, this summer, this winter and next winter and for the next five winters. Uh, and and I, I think we need to look at more immediate solutions that are not inflationary. Because, and it's terribly difficult. I'm not, I'm not going to be kind of say, oh, it's dead simple, do this and this and it'll all be fixed. But pumping money into it, either by tax reductions or by straight helicopter money, in itself oh, right. is, is going to cause an additional problem down the line. I mean, what, what's the green solution on all of this? I mean, that we're talking about in a crisis such as this, that good can come out of it because the push for, for renewables is there and it's stronger than ever, Oisin. Yeah, I mean, but that, again, is not something that's happening overnight. No, but some parts can be done faster than others. So I think, for example, we should de-emphasize the deep retrofits for this year or so. I think there's about 9,000 planned and we should ramp up the insulation. I think the SEI was budgeting for like 25,000 shallow retrofits, so insulation. We could easily do 100,000 this year. And, but I think it can't only be left to the grant system. Like the grants are quite good now. It's 100% for those on fuel allowance, 80% for others. But you still have to go and get them and organise it. So I actually think, again, like we're doing with the Ukrainian refugees where the government is bringing together the, the players in this, the, the SEI should be mandated to bring in the Vincent de Paul, bring in Age Action. Is it being treated as a crisis? Do you think, not, no, not enough. And we, and we should be looking to give wraparound services, to the, wraparound offerings to those at most at risk of fuel poverty and get the insulation done in their houses in the next six months. We have six months before winter sets in again. If it's a real emergency, let's see if we can do 100,000 houses by then. That will make a real difference. There'll be warmer homes, cleaner air, uh, lower bills and less pollution. OK, uh, let's just have a, a little watch at what the government um, has announced. One of the measures that it's taking, this is the Reduce Your Use uh, campaign. If you're serious about reducing your CO2 emissions and you want to save money, reducing the energy you need for heating is where to start. There are some simple things you can do right now to be more energy efficient. Turn the thermostat down to 20 degrees in your living area. Only heat your home when you need to and get your boiler serviced every year. This will ensure your heating system... You know, there was a really um, soft launch, I would suggest, on this, Hildegard Nocton. We didn't hear so much about it and when we did hear about it, it was... Um, comments that were, you know, apparently coming from uh, Minister Eamon Ryan about taking shorter showers. So is this just slipped in, these energy-saving tips, but we don't want to make a fuss about them? No, I think these are really important. And again, they are tips for people. And this is not mandatory, but if you want to look... I think we all need to be reminded sometimes to turn off the lights as we leave the room, uh, don't leave things charging when they're fully charged, uh, looking at, I don't know, turning down the temperature of your... Um, of your washing machine, if it's up at a higher temperature, you don't need to run it. Uh, look at the peak times uh, for using electricity and just to be more aware. I think that's yeah. useful and that's common sense and it's factual. But isn't, isn't there a difficulty around the messaging in that, that for many people, what you're saying, they are doing already. Yeah, that's it. And, and they're and if still they are, struggling. Yeah, yeah. And, and we, we get that. And that's why we've put in place, I suppose, these schemes, these measures, targeted measures for particular sectors, even down to the 9% retention of the 9% VAT rate for the hospitality sector. That will help them with the costs you know, that they're incurring. So every sector has been targeted here. But an awareness campaign is important as well. And it's up to people. It's not mandatory. It's just putting the information out okay. there. OK. You know, the government is getting quite a bit of flack over energy saving tips, but is there a right way to do it, Paul? 
Well, it's no problem. It's good to give people energy saving tips. Um, you shouldn't treat it as if people aren't already, very many people, having to make the choice between heating and heating. But also the government then needs to match that individual advice to individuals with action that only the government can take. So, for example, we know that data centres are now using 14% of our total energy consumption in this country. That's up by a third in one year, that's up 265% since 2015. We're heading towards them using mm. a third of our total electricity consumption by the end of the decade. That makes no sense whatsoever. We had a bill to ban future okay. data centres, ban fossil fuel infrastructure. The government voted against Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. That, it, we, what is going on in the in data centers, some of it is socially useful, some of it is not. Okay, some of it is algorithms targeting you with, with stuff that you don't even know you want now, creating okay. new artificial yeah, ones and we, for we know We know about um, you know, the, these data energy centers and certainly um, there's a number of them in this country and they're eating up an awful lot of electricity. Is there too much emphasis, do you think, on what individuals can do when really it's these big, it's these big centres who should be doing more because they're the ones who are using all the electricity yes, in this, in this be, crisis? It would be both in terms of making the biggest difference and in terms of the politics 
and the optics and the communications, it would be a mistake for the government, and it has been shown to be a mistake already, if they, if they are seen to emphasise the individual solutions, because it's not, it, 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 people, people push back against that when, they're tr when most people are trying their best. There's no harm in the information, it's useful, and there are those who aren't doing enough, for sure. Uh, those, who drive, those who are choosing to, to buy new SUVs, for example, that's, that, that's no longer really practical anymore if you're, if, to buy diesel and, and, and petrol SUVs. But uh, in this case, the data centres, like, it is extraordinary when you see the figures. And they've only come to the, into the public domain in the last few years that we've been paying attention mm. from, I think, about 5 to 15% since, since 2015 and heading towards 30% by 2030. If, when, that, when the government's allowing that to happen with the policy that was facilitating them and is now sort of just a bit ambivalent but not, not, not cracking down, it's very hard to persuade people that, that they should be doing these little things when, when these massive, massive consumption of electricity, driving demand for gas, yeah, locking us into gas. That's a huge problem, isn't it? You know, it's all very well to tell people to, you know, not fill the kettle and turn the thermostat down and take shorter showers when you've but then you've got these big data well, that's, that's, centres that are being supported not, by government. I, I think that's a very wrong, I suppose, perception or description of what's happening here. At a government level, we're putting in place measures. That's one thing we're doing. We're also looking at, we've got our Climate Act in relation to every single government department um, having their, I suppose, emissions um, ceilings in relation, even in my own department, the Department of Transport, uh, Agriculture, we all now have, have um, <coughs> emissions targets that we need to be, uh, I suppose, reaching and uh, meet, reaching that 51% uh, uh, reduction by, by 2030. So it's not to say that we're asking individuals. This is an awareness campaign about what you could do to help reduce your bills. We haven't done anything and about the data centres. Well, it's the well, elephant well, in the well, room. Well, well, what you fail to, to see about the data centres is, I'm sure you've got a mobile phone, you've got your laptop, yep. we've got um, you know huge software, med tech um, uh, centres right across this country. We rely on, we've got, I suppose, our, our Facebook, Googles, um, in of this world, okay. based here, and, and I don't think there is an. I'm not saying that we we have to get the balance right. Absolutely, in relation to in relation to energy consumption, nobody right. saying anything You're different. All right, we have to leave it there. You're giving the perception here that okay. all data centres are bad, and that no, is not. That, 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 that is not the case. Of and, and you're misrepresenting okay, just quickly. Oh, she yeah, that. The, the average across Europe for how much of data centres use of your, of your electricity is 1 to 2%, and we're heading towards 30% of electricity. All right. In data centers. On that note, we have to leave it uh, on that topic. My thanks to Oshin Coughlin uh, for joining us. The rest of the panel will be staying on. After the break, Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Officer Dr. Ronan Glynn is to step aside, and the latest in the National Maternity Hospital controversy. Stay with us. Welcome back. News came today that Deputy Chief Medical Officer Dr. Ronan Glynn, one of the leading health officials who steered Ireland through the COVID-19 pandemic, will resign. This comes less than two months after Chief Medical Officer Dr. Tony Houlihan confirmed that he will also leave his role. Well, Sinead Ryan, Minister Hildegard Nocton and Paul Murphy are still with me. And on the line via Skype is clinical editor for the medical independent Priscilla Lynch. Uh, Priscilla, thanks for joining us on the show tonight. Take us through this. Uh, Dr. Ronan Glynn announcing he is to depart as Deputy Chief Medical Officer. Does this come as a surprise? 
Well, there had been some speculation that he might follow uh, Dr. Holohan um, after an, ex- an exceptionally grueling two years uh, of the pandemic. And obviously that just came into play today with the announcement that he's to leave. Uh, he's leaving in a short space of time, actually, at the end of this month. And he'll go then to the private sector, to EY later this year uh, in a health advisory role, uh, it's understood. So he hasn't um, actually put a statement out about um, his departure yet. Uh, but we know it is a big blow to the department. It's a huge loss of institutional knowledge to lose both the CMO and the deputy CMO at the same time, essentially following what has been one of the toughest periods, I suppose, in the history of the state and obviously the world in dealing with this particular pandemic. And there's a lot of knowledge there and experience uh, that's going out the door. So obviously um, people are keen to see the replacements uh, being put in place. But, you know, this could be an opportunity too, perhaps to change those roles around to try and maybe put more support into their office um, with their replacements. So, yeah, as I said, it is a big blow. And uh, But there should be a lot of interest in those particular posts. But how do we make them attractive? Because it's been a very, very tough couple of years. And Dr. Lynn in particular has been thrust into the spotlight where, where he wouldn't have been so much uh, before. Uh, you know, Dr. Holohan would have been out there, obviously, with cervical check a lot more. But uh, Dr. Lynn has, is seen as an excellent communicator very calm, authoritative, so he will be a big loss. And um, the Taoiseach and the Taunashta tonight paid tribute uh, to him and said, obviously, that you know they regret his departure and that they wish him well. It's a, it's a real problem, isn't it, um, Hildegard, for the department? We now have a situation where the number one and number two um, chief medical officers will have exited their roles and whoever is coming in will not have had that experience of guiding the country through a pandemic. Yeah, first of all, I just want to, I suppose, commend uh, Dr. Ronan Lynn as a, as a fellow Galway person. We're very proud of him in Galway and the service that he's given to the country and Dr. Tony Holohan as well. And you are right, like they have just huge experience and what they must have gone through. I'm sure there's a book in them both after two years of trying to manage and steer a pandemic and the eyes and ears of the nation listening to them every evening. That was huge pressure on them. You, you can be assured, I'm sure personally. Um, but you're right, we do need to fill those uh, uh, those positions very quickly and people, uh, again, of high calibre to go in there and to yeah, be and able losing, to... Yeah, and losing key public officials yeah. to the private sector. Yeah, no, it is a shame and I would hope that in time why do you think they happened? would come back. Well, I think that this is a, was a personal decision and, you know, on both, uh, both counts um, and as I say, it has been a gruelling two years. I think the issue around Dr Tony Holohan and I think it has been well aired, I think that whole process was badly handled and um, I know there was a committee, health committee hearing mm. um, and particularly the, the communications around that and I think that was a real shame um, and I don't think it's any reflection on Dr Tony Holen. I think the nation completely right. support both men and wish them well. Okay, um, I just I want to move on to just this, this controversy that is continuing over the National Maternity Hospital because also in the Dáil today we heard more about it, the Taoiseach facing continued opposition to the plans uh, during leaders' questions. Take a look. You've talked about a tenor a year for 300 years. You're trying to pass that off as public ownership. You say that the land was gifted. Oh, oh, the crux of this issue is that the land has not been gifted. Why did the state put aside the question of of compulsory purchase order mechanism. Why did the state lose that leverage by which it would have been possible to acquire the site in perpetuity? Honesty is important in debate. And for you to come in and suggest that a 300-year lease at a nominal rate of 10 euros a year is somehow not ownership is being dishonest. I have to be clear about that. I don't like saying this. But there's only so much 
of nonsense can be accommodated here in respect of the ownership question. The ownership is not an issue here. It's not an issue, but many think it is. In fact, there are developments on this story tonight, um, Priscilla. Can you take us uh, through them? Two members of the HSE um, board have restated their concerns um, about the National Maternity Hospital plans in a letter to the Oireachtas Committee on Health. What can you tell us? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Professor Deirdre Madden and Dr. Sarah Lachlan, um, they explained in their letter that they don't believe that it's a good move, that they asked for absolute clarity in the separation of church and state. And they said that it would be better achieved if the state owned the land that the hospital will be built on. So again, this shows that not, you know, that even among the HSE board members themselves, there are some concerns about this particular deal. Um, the Department of Health and the HSE have obviously published a suite of documents at this stage out outlining the constitution of the hospital, how they'll work together with St. Vincent's Hospital, um, obviously as well, what happens uh, if there's dissent on either side, the minister will own the lion's share. It's quite a complicated and legalistic process. There's been months of work put into this. Um, the government and the Minister for Health, they state that they are absolutely satisfied that they have enough guarantees and security now to be absolutely sure that all clinically appropriate and legally available procedures will be carried out uh, as required uh, in the new National Maternity Hospital. There's also a lot of support for the proposals from staff at St. Vincent's and the National Maternity, they've actually come out um, kind of en masse on Twitter and on, on radio and in print in the last number of days as well to say that they're very much in support of this and they believe that they will be um, able to carry out their jobs absolutely independently and that they are very keen to see the new hospital built as quickly as possible and that the current facilities just aren't appropriate anymore for patients. But also this is going to be watched very closely by the Rotunda and the Coombe as well because those two hospitals have also been promised new premises and to be rebuilt uh, on new sites, uh, including in Blanchardstown and in St. James's. And unless St. Vincent's goes ahead, really the chances of them going ahead, you know, um, they decline as well um, as we look at this controversy. Okay, there's an awful lot hanging in the balance here, um, Hildegard Nocton. There's also reports tonight, Jennifer Bray in The Times saying there's a possibility of delaying the Cabinet mem memo on the National Maternity Hospital raised um, during Donnelly's briefing um, to Fine Gael TDs. Were you briefed on this today by Stephen Donnelly? Did he reassure you? And what do you think has come out from that? Because we're hearing that um, some in Fine Gael are looking for extra clarification around this clinical appropriateness. Yes, I, I was at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting tonight. I, I also sit at Cabinet. So last Tuesday, I was somebody at Cabinet who raised, so I had concerns and, and raised concerns. And my concern was about putting all of the information out there so that we could have these exact conversations. I get the, the mistrust, the genuine concerns. I have people in Galway, my own constituency, contacting me, women who have, mm. who are, it's not conspiracy theories here. They have genuine concerns about and are, the are your, independence. Are your concerns allayed? Because we're hearing my, from my colleagues within Fine Gael yeah. and certainly the Greens, they're still not happy. Yeah, my, my concerns are allayed and, and, and I, I just okay. want to be, be very clear and I know, I think it's really important to say this, the people really want to know that this, in, that this hospital will be independent. It will be independent. All right. That we will own the hospital. Okay. We will. Homer for shaking we will his own head there. the land. We effectively will through that 300 year lease. But, so the, all the information is in the public domain. Here we have the constitution of the St. Vincent's Healthcare Group, which says very clearly um, St. Vincent's Hospital, founded by Mary Aikenhead, who was the founder of the Sisters of Charity, ran uh, 
Magdalene Laundry is incarcerating thousands of women and this should be in the continuation of the fulfilment of this mission, etc. This body is the body that will own the land and it seems the buildings. That's no. the National Maternity Hospital. That's, no. that's what lo lots no. of lawyers. Secondly, no. not, o not only do they have a relationship, it's and this is, this is the point made by the HSE, uh, the people from the HSE board, Deirdre Madden and Sarah McLaughlin, they have a landlord uh, relationship with the National Maternity Hospital. They also have three directors on the board. On the board, that's the ethos that they will be pursuing. All right, okay, um, Sinead, so just... Can I just make one point? Is that government, it, the, government, the government is under pressure there on is this no issue. Religious ethos. People power is needed. There is There's a no protest at two o'clock at Saturday okay. at the door. It's very important, important people mobilise. All right, no, I've no religious ethos. People can read it themselves. Hildegard, that's fine. And I think that point has been made clearly. That's that's the opinion on government on it. Sinead, this is a mess now, isn't it? I mean, you've no, had if, government if, TDs if, contacting you about how to respond to this, room, is that right? Uh, this is about optics now, okay? It's not about the legal contracts. I'm sure it is, but that's for better brains than mine. This is about losing the room. And if you do not have people with you, and it is the taxpayers who are the client here, uh, then you have to look at how that contract is set up. I find it ironic that on the same day that the children's minister had to apologise uh, in the Shannon for all the illegal adoptions that took place in this country under the auspices of, yes, the state and the church. On the same day in 2022, we are dealing with this stuff again. No wonder women are distrustful. We now have four men telling us everything will be fine. The Taoiseach, the Taunisha, the Minister for Health, and now the Deputy Chair of, of one of the boards involved in this this morning on radio. It'll be grand. There's lots of women. Now, we there's have lots been of women. Told there's lots of women, lots of clinicians, Rono, Mahoney, lots of women years. saying that there's We going have to be been told that. And then there are other people that are saying we're not quite sure. Uh, and you know the thing about it is, <clears throat> if it is a feeling that people are nervous about this and women are nervous about what's ahead. What is the problem with having a line in the clause, because this clinically appropriate thing is getting to everybody, yeah, right? That Me is included. an issue. How about I, you That is an say, issue and we're hearing that that is I, an issue get, tonight I with your to colleagues and government. And I get the way... I, I want to deal with it. Just, just in a sec, because I get the way that they are saying that that means, oh, okay, you're not going to do brain surgery in the hospital. I hear that and I get that. We're not, like, we do get it. But, but what is wrong with putting in a line that says, clinically appropriate as defined by the HSE. You don't have to give a li big list of uh, procedures from abortion to, you know, zygote implantation. You have to say as decided by the HSE, not decided by that board of whatever members are placed Look, on it this by is, this, is, this is clearly the sticking point on the clini know, clinical yeah. appropriateness. And, it's really and we keep hearing going, yeah. it's a maternity hospital, yeah. it's not it's for cardiac line. surgery, yeah. it's not for other things, it's, it's, for, it's for women's health. Yeah. But, it, but yeah. it hasn't assuaged concerns. Yeah. No, it's, it's really important and I'm glad you give me the chance to answer it. And I get the concerns and these are questions that I had that I have got answered, that I am now, I, I'm clear that there is absolute independence. Clinically, it's clinically appropriate and legally permissible. So clinically appropriate is that what you said, it's going to be obstetric, gynecological, neonatal, everything that a maternity hospital should do, not, as you say, uh, you know, cardiac or so brain surgery. So why can't that be clarified somewhere within, within yeah, the constitution on this? Do you think that can be words. done? And what? do you think that will be required, yeah. in advice, fact, to get this the through advice, with support? Yeah, the advice we got that, that if, if you start putting in a list. No, there, there will be. That's there, what I didn't say. There will, there, 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 
what, what could happen and what does happen in medicine is there are new procedures all the time that could be added to and when you As have decided when, when by you the HSE have, yeah because the HSE That's the, line. the HSE wanted that in it right. legally permissible means it's really important as well that the, the laws of this land that have been passed I sat on the committee of the eighth amendment so I have I share the concerns of the women of Ireland I'm coming from that perspective I know uh, the genuine right. concerns there there's legal protections here in the yeah. constitution it is not there's no religious interference all right. The nuns have divested all of it's, their shares. The point, the point Paul Murphy, the point that Paul was making was, was around um, you know, the, the ethical guidelines, the ethical framework of, of Sister Mary Aikenhead um, within the Constitution on this. Paul, very briefly. Yeah, the, all the all we have from the government, the that, you, you saying I'm going to clarify the issues around clinically appropriate. That's your word. That's useless it's to people. In, word, in 100 years' time, word. that's also useless. It's, it's because it's not word. contained, it's not it is not defined <laughs> not in the lease. Word, it's not defined in the lease whatsoever. Same so you can have a dispute between the landlord, which is pursuing the mission of Mary Aikenhead, and who's going to decide upon it. I want to um, come back to Priscilla. Priscilla. You know, sterilizations yes. don't happen no, in, in, in Vincent. They, they don't happen. Tubal ligations so, don't happen. Now, some I have medics have said that. These. That they, they actually they do occur, they but, but it happen. certainly is contentious. What's, what's contained in the answers that I have, they only happen where it's dealing with another medical please issue, for example. Listen. And we know, we know like that, that. we know, we, just, just on this, we know the that the National Maternity Hospital's defence of this is they make the decisions. It'll be the hospital, yeah, the, the National Maternity Hospital, that make the decision Three on this. But nonetheless, will there be are, from the there are plenty of questions. Priscilla, very briefly, the Minister for Health is before the Oireachtas Committee on Health on this tomorrow, clearly many questions still to be answered and plenty of clarification needed if it's to be approved. That's correct. Really, uh, Sinead said he needs to win the room. He needs to convince people that there are enough protections in place and that they can get this going. Because if we do see a stalling of the project, it will probably be delayed for many years. But obviously, we have to do it correctly. So there is an awful lot of pressure uh, going forward. And I can completely understand the concerns of clinicians because in the St. Vincent's Healthcare Group uh, previously, there would have been criticism over clinical trials and religious interference and ethos and whatnot. And we know as a country, we are quite far behind when it comes to certain procedures uh, in Ireland, medical procedures because of religious uh, in interference. But again, a lot of pressure tomorrow. There is a lot of hope, though, on the side of the minister that it will actually go through. OK, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Priscilla, to Hildegard and Paul and Sinead. After the break, the so-called Wagatha Christie trial begins in earnest. Stay with us. Welcome back. The high-profile libel battle between footballers' wives Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy has kicked off in London. Rebecca Vardy is suing Colleen Rooney over what she describes as untrue and unjustified accusations about leaked stories. Well, for more on this, I spoke a little earlier to journalist Enda Brady and I asked him to remind us how we got here. Yeah, very good question, Claire. It's uh, two years and counting, really. So it goes back to October 2019 when Colleen Rooney put out this now famous tweet. And she'd had her suspicions for some time that someone was leaking stories about her family and her private life, and they were ending up in tabloid newspapers here. So what she did very cleverly, detective work, hence the name Wagatha Christie, she, on her Instagram story, started dwindling down the number of followers who could see her daily story. And she started planting occasional stories in there that were completely false. So she was going to make a TV comeback, completely false, got leaked, ended up in the papers. 
her and Wayne, really, her husband, were going to go to Mexico for some sort of gender therapy so they could have a baby girl next after three boys, completely false, ended up in the papers. And after doing all her detective work, she realised, and she put out in her own now famous words, it's Rebecca Vardy's account. So, I mean, we're likely to hear a lot of dirty laundry being aired over the coming days, I imagine. Who's taking to the stands? Who are we likely to hear from in the coming days? So, Rebecca Vardy was on the stand today. She's possibly going to take the stand again tomorrow. And it didn't really go well for her today. I mean, the Rooney legal team ripped into her about missing documents, a telephone belonging to her agent, a mobile phone belonging to Caroline Watt, that can't be found apparently after the court decreed that it should be searched for WhatsApp messages and texts and emails and information. Um, it mysteriously ended up in the North Sea off Scotland, um, washed by a wave off a boat. So there was much made of that in court today. Um, it didn't go well for Rebecca Vardy today, but tomorrow is another day. Um, she denies that she is the source of the leaks and the case goes on, but this is gonna cost in total an estimated €3 million Euros in legal fees. And, of course, lots of nice headlines for the tabloid newspapers. Elsewhere, the Queen's speech took place earlier today, and uh, but the Queen herself was absent. So Her Majesty watched this on TV, I'm told, at Windsor Castle. Charles was sent off in her place, and it was a very significant day for the House of Windsor. So what we're seeing is the next step in what they call behind the scenes in the palace operation transition. So you're looking at Charles, Camilla by his side, William there behind him. Um, but the Queen was not there. Significantly, Charles did not sit on the throne. So he sat at a chair that's normally reserved for the consort. So Charles did not sit on the chair that his mother would have been sitting on. He sat to one side. So I think what we're going to see now in the coming weeks and months is just more responsibility coming his way. His mother's 96. She has what they call episodic mobility issues. But in all likelihood, I don't think we'll see her doing state opening of parliament again. It's only the third time in 70 years that she's missed it. She missed it in 1959 when she was pregnant with Andrew, 63 when she had just had Edward, and now today. But I would imagine we won't be seeing the Queen very much in public going forward. And of course, all eyes now are on the Jubilee weekend, the first weekend in June. Okay, journalist Andrew Brady, as always, uh, thank you for that. And that is it from us, from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.